Well, this morning we are talking about uh, just this plentiful harvest, and we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, so you want to turn in your Bibles there. We're looking at um, just sort of a famous missions passage, Romans 10, verses 13 to 17, and this is the word of the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come as your people, and we can hear from you. This uh, is your word. You gave it to your apostles and prophets years ago, and yet you have preserved it so that we can hear it today. And you do speak, and you speak to us through it. And so, Lord, we come anxious to hear from you. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd bless me as I seek to communicate it faithfully and truthfully. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would attend to this. We know, Spirit, unless you are at work in our hearts and our minds, uh, then we are simply wasting our time here today. And so, Lord, we pray, please work, please move, that we would see your glory and be transformed by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In October of 1858, John and Mary Patton left their home in Scotland and went to the island we now call Vanuatu. Now, Uh, When they first went there, that was not what it's called, but you know this island, some of you do. It is the setting of Roger and Hammerstein's South Pacific. And they went there, of course, to take the gospel. Well, a few months after they arrived, Mary gave birth to a child, and they both ended up uh, dying uh, there from malaria. Two years later, some traders came in, and they... uh, contaminated the the site intentionally with the measles and blamed it on the missionaries so that the people would turn against the missionaries. And the people did. They rose up against John Patton, clubbed him him nearly to death. Uh, They did club to death his co-worker, Samuel Johnson. Soon all the new Christian converts uh, were under attack. Many were put to death for their faith. Patton was forced to flee for his life, barely escaping. By 1861, Only three years after he had arrived, uh, more than 25 missionaries had served in that area. Many of them and their converts died of disease and martyred, and soon the rest left. None remained. It was a complete failure. A few years later, uh, God was not finished. 1868, Thomas and Lucy Nielsen, along with uh, uh, some new converts, went to a nearby island. They were joined by Frank Patton, son of John and Mary, And uh, they went and began to plant churches as well, and the work seemed to flourish. Uh, But by the end of the 1930s, the people began to turn away from the church to something known as the John Frum cults. Uh, What had happened was, during that time of World War I, ships would come in with uh, cargo ships and airplanes with all sorts of cargoes, and to the people living there, it looked like the gods were sending all of this in. And it looked uh, something of, of a miraculous thing, and... American man named John Cargo, apparently, excuse me, John Frum, 
And somehow, the people associated him with this cargo, and they begin to combine their, their native religions with uh, different aspects of what they were seeing, so a bit of prosperity gospel, a little bit of Christianity, and they merged it all in, and they began to worship this John Frum, who they believe would come back one day and bring the cargo with them. And so, again, the whole Christian movement in Vanuatu was wiped out as these people went away towards this cult. Well, a few years ago, Paul Taylor, who was the international director for Mission to the World in the Asia-Pacific, came and he met with the, uh, the pastors and elders who oversee the work of Mission to the World, and he said something amazing has happened. 7,000 people from these John Frum cargo cults have come to our Presbyterian churches and said, we want to follow Jesus. 7,000 people, this incredible movement of God, people turning away from the cult, turning to the gospel, coming to, of all things, the Presbyterian church. And they're coming there, and they're saying, and so we, we see this amazing movement. And so it's, it's, it's incredible. The harvest is plentiful. But here's the problem. They needed teaching. They needed discipling. They needed to be trained. And we didn't have the workers. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. And that is still true in that area today. God is at work moving in great ways, but there need to be more workers. Harvest is plentiful. The gospel needs to go out. How are people going to believe the true gospel if they've never heard it? And how are they going to hear it unless someone preaches? And how is someone going to preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And that's what Paul is celebrating here in Romans chapter 10. So in Romans 10, Paul reminds us why it's essential for us as the church to be taking the gospel to the nations. So let's begin by the necessity of proclaiming, the necessity of proclaiming. Now, one of the common objections that people today have against missions in general is, is this whole idea of why do we need to travel around the world to quote-unquote save people? It sounds like this white savior complex, doesn't it? It sounds like colonialism. It sounds like imperialism. I mean, who do we think we are coming in and saving? Who, you know, why are we going anywhere to do this? Now, it is true that some things that have happened under the banner of global missions have been terrible. There have been things that have been colonialistic. There have been things that have been imperialistic. Uh, but that is not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is not advocating cultural imperialism. He's not advocating this sort of idea of being the white savior. First of all, Paul wasn't white. Paul was Middle Eastern. And guess where he's sending people to, as missions? Where is he writing his letter? To Europe. He is going from the Middle East to Europe. Not only that, Paul is not advocating this sort of cultural imperialism where we're inviting people to abandon their own culture and adopt a new one. Instead, what we see in the book of Acts is just the opposite. One of the things that happened in the book of Acts that led to the growth of the church is, you remember, the church was originally, everybody was Jewish. But the Holy Spirit began to work among the Gentiles, and, and one of the questions was, where the Gentiles have to adopt Jewish cultural practices in order to follow Jesus. And this controversy got really, really big. In fact, it's so big, the church almost blew up over it. And they finally had a meeting in Jerusalem in uh, Acts chapter 15. And the Holy Spirit worked through the elders of the church. It, it, it's, it's really interesting there, by the way. You have the elders of the church arguing back and forth. And when they finally make a decision, they get up and say, the Holy Spirit has said. How did the Holy Spirit speak? He spoke to the leaders of the church. And the Holy Spirit has said, and here's what the Holy Spirit has said. He said that, that, 
Gentiles don't have to become Jewish. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to adopt these cultural practices. Now, this is a big deal because if you've been Jewish your whole life and you thought of eating pork as being not just bad, but just as being evil, and now imagine the first covered dish dinner, somebody brings the barbecue. I mean, you know, this is, a, this is huge. This is controversial. But the church said... We're not imposing cultural practices. We're not imposing the ceremonial law. You don't have to adopt our culture. We're, we're, we're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it is not a, a cultural imperialism. But there's still this whole idea that many people object to in saying, but still, you're going to go in and say, well, the only way to be saved is if you believe in our religion, if you follow Jesus. Well, we have to recognize, first of all, this is not an invention of the Christian church. This is what Jesus himself said. Jesus himself has declared that unless you believe in him, he said, you will not be saved. Uh, that's what he says in John chapter 8, exact words. Unless you believe in him, you will die in your sins. Later in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. This whole idea that to be saved, one has to believe in Jesus, this exclusive claim is not an invention of the church, it's an invention of Jesus. And people say, well, I admire Jesus. Well, here's what Jesus said. Uh, still, some find that claim that a person must believe in Jesus to be, uh, have eternal life, to be objectionable, even offensive, and will say, you know, okay, I admire Jesus. I have to deal with this fact that he said this, but this seems to be... Um, too extreme, uh, too exclusive. Uh, they might say something like, well, you know, to believe in Jesus is fine, but I believe that a devout Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu, uh, you know, or even a good atheist, uh, you know, will certainly find their way to heaven. A, a slightly, slightly different version of this would be, you know, I don't think God would send somebody to hell just because they didn't believe the right thing. I mean, a good God, a just God would not do that. He would not send someone to hell just because they didn't believe the right thing. That is true. God does not send anyone to hell just because they don't believe the right thing. God's a good God. He's a just God. God judges us according to our deeds if we're not in Christ Jesus. And here's, I think, where we really get to the issue. Do we really believe that we're that bad? That, that sin is that sinful, that it actually separates us from God, that it actually deserves punishment. In fact, I think that's part of the problem is do we see sin as being that sinful? And in fact, we, we deal with it ourselves. Do we really see ourselves as being sinners in need of a Savior? I think the uh, missionary from the 20th century, Francis Schaeffer, who Mark, by the way, came to faith through his ministry in Europe, Francis Schaeffer illustrated it this way. He said, well, imagine this. He said, imagine that when a, a child is born, that God implants in that child a little mini recorder. And that little recorder only records one thing. It records judgments, like any time you say, you should do this or you should not do that, or that person should do this or that person should not do that. And records all those things. And then when you die, at the end of your life, you're standing there before God the judge, and God says, I tell you what, I am going to judge you by the most fair standard possible. I'm going to judge you by how you've been judging everybody else. And then God says, roll the tape. 
and you play the tape of every time you said about someone else. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't treat your friends like that. You shouldn't be rude. You shouldn't be mean. You shouldn't cut off people in traffic. You, should, you know, all those times that you've judged people over and over again. And by the way, that's going to be a very long tape. And he does that, and he stands there, and he judges you by each one of the judgments you've made of others. How would you do? And none of us would be able to stand. None of us would be able to stand. We could not stand before that. We can't live up to our, uh, our own standards. And certainly we realize that we could not live up to the standard of a holy God. And here's where Christianity is actually more inclusive than all the other religions. In all the other religions, you have to get to heaven the old-fashioned way. You have to earn it. Now think about Hinduism. In Hinduism, you work your way up to Moksha, the, the release from this earthly life, through a series of reincarnations uh, th that, uh, you know, if you do better, you move up the food chain, so to speak. But there's no guarantee you're going to go up. You could just as easily go down in the next reincarnation. And, and that's why, by the way, Hinduism is one of the most oppressive religions in the world because if you're poor and you're suffering, it's because you did something bad in the previous life and you deserve it. That's why they treat the untouchables the way that they do. Hinduism is not inclusive. It's oppressive. Uh, and, and, and so we see that there's no, there's no forgiveness in Buddhism. I remember years ago when Tiger Woods had his, uh, you know, all the controversy around him. He said, I need to get back to my Buddhist faith. And, and it's not going to help. There's no forgiveness in Buddhism. There's no atonement in Islam. And certainly, there's no hope in atheism to escape your guilt and your shame and your regret. All the other religions of the world exclude those who do not measure up, and none of us measure up. Only Christianity offers hope for those who fail. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came, and he became a human being. He became one of us, and he, he lives as our representative, and he becomes a, a man, and he obeys the law at every point. He, didn't, he never did anything wrong. The only person ever to live a perfectly righteous life. And then he died on the cross and he paid the penalty of sin. And what Jesus says then is anyone, anyone who believes in me, as we said here in Romans, anyone who calls upon his name is then saved. How? Because you're united to him by faith. You become united to him. And when you become a Christian, it is as if you become married to him. And everything that is yours is now his. And everything that is his is now yours, which means all of your sin, all of your debt now belongs to him. And all of his righteousness, all that good works belongs to you. And so you now stand before the Father, holy, righteous, and blameless. Not just forgiven. Not just forgiven. You stand before the Father, adored as a child, because you are robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And see, that's not just a message for us. That's a message for everyone. It's a message for the world. And everyone can share in that. Everyone can share in, in this, this hope that Jesus offers. So, so we announce to the world says that, that if you put your faith in Christ, your sin is taken away, the righteousness of Christ is given to you, and you get to share in the kingdom of God and the world that he's making. And that's the hope. So faith, Paul says, comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So here's the mission of the church. 
The mission of the church is to go into all the world and tell the people this good news. Our mission is to invite them to come and know and experience God's love and forgiveness. And it's only by hearing the word that they may believe. So that's the necessity of proclaiming. You know, um, have you ever heard the saying that some have said, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words? You ever heard that? Been attributed to Francis of Assisi, don't know if he said it. It's always necessary to use words. It's always necessary to use words. How are they going to believe if they don't hear? And so certainly we go in and do good things, but ultimately the saving message is faith in Christ that they need to put their faith in Christ. So that's the necessity of proclaiming. Secondly, we see the necessity of sending. The necessity of sending. Now, if salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, then the only way of salvation is for people to believe. But they cannot believe if they haven't heard, and they cannot hear unless someone tells them about it. And so Jesus then has commissioned his church to go and announce this to the world. And the way we read it in Acts 1.8, he says, you're to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth, which by the way, from their point of view would be here, right? Now, to the ends of the earth. To the, in other words, it's to, to encompass the globe uh, geographically every part. Uh, and in Matthew 28, Jesus commissions his church, and he says you're to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, some will look at this, and they say the, you know, the Greek word go is not a command. We can debate that another time. Uh, but how are you going to make disciples of all nations unless you go? It's implied, right? You have to go. How are they going to hear unless we go? And so, ultimately, the mission of the church is to take the gospel to the nations, and to do that, we must go. The good news is, I think this is pretty exciting, the good news is the gospel is bearing fruit among the nations. How many of you, this, well, this might put some of you on the spot in a weird way, how many of you have been supporting missions for over 30 years? Praying for missionaries for over 30 years, 40 years. I, I'm going to show my age, not that you can figure it out, but you know, I remember going to a missions conference probably over 50 years ago. And growing up, when we thought about the mission field, what areas did you think of? What part of the world? Africa. Just Africa? South America. Asia. And, and, and that's what we thought of as the mission, uh, mission field. And in the 1960s, less than 30% of the world's Christians lived in those areas. Africa, Asia, South America, Latin America. By 2000, 80% of the Christians live in those areas. 30% in the 60s, 80% by by the 2000s. And according to the Washington Post, there are 1 billion, with a B, 1 billion Christians in Africa and Latin America alone. In Asia, Christianity is growing at twice the rate of the population. Today, there are more Christians worshiping in China on Sunday than there are in the United States. There are more people in church in Kenya than there are in Canada. There are more Presbyterians in Ghana than there are in Scotland. This is amazing. The reason I say this is because some of you have been supporting and praying for missions for a long, long time. God has blessed your work. 
He's blessed your giving. He's blessed your generosity. He's blessed your prayers. And, and so we see that the gospel is bearing fruit. The harvest really is plentiful. Uh, but the work's not finished. It's not all good news. As these people are coming to the faith in Christ uh, by, the, by the millions, oftentimes the gospel that they are hearing in many of these cases is really no gospel at all. They're hearing the prosperity gospel. That, that follow Jesus and you can become rich. It's just another version of the John Frum cargo cults. They're, they're being taught legalism, a works-based salvation. Uh, and as a result, it's bringing very little transformation to societies. Uh, for example, in half the p- people in Nigeria profess faith in Christ, and yet the country is just full of corruption and poverty. Uganda, like the shirts, uh, you know, U- U- Uganda is something like, like 70% professing Christians, somewhere around that. Cultural transformation, zero. Uh, the last elections were just uh, horrific, uh, the things that were going on there. And, and, and what has happened? Uh, and so, uh, you know, one uh, Nigerian missionary and a New Testament scholar who is uh, him, he's Nigerian uh, Dr. Femi Adelie said that it is because people have been fed a diet of prosperity gospel and are looking for shortcuts out of poverty. They've not been given either a biblical view of grace or vocation or of work. Dr. Victor Naka, he's also an African, he leads uh, our mission to the world's work in Africa. He said what we've had is a serious failure of discipleship. See, bad theology hurts people. You know, sometimes we think, why we argue about this theology? It has dire, dire consequences. And we're seeing that in Africa and Latin America. And so people are embracing a gospel that is not the true gospel. But how are they going to believe unless they hear? And how are they going to hear unless someone preaches? And how is someone going to preach unless they are sent? Uh, furthermore, we, we see uh, an, an amazing things in other parts of the world where it's very, very difficult. Think about London. I mean, you know, England, the gospel's been in London for 1,500 years. It's been there a while, right? It's been there for 1,500 years. England, unlike the United States, is technically a Christian country. It is officially a Christian country. They have a church. Yet, less than 5% of the people in England attend church at all. Uh, And, in fact, one of our workers who's in Scotland told me, he's been there for quite a number of years, he said, I've never met a Christian outside of a church function, ever. Not at my kid's school, not in the market, never met a Christian. This is Scotland, our mother country, right? And, and, and yet what we're seeing here is that the, the gospel, and by the way, that's true all over Europe. It, it, it's, it's true in Germany, it's, it, it's, uh, it's true in, in France, it's, probably, it's worse probably in, in, uh, in France and other places. Uh, the, and so what's happening is we see this incredible need these people are not rejecting the gospel. They have never heard the gospel. Uh, think about um, other things that are going on in London. There's massive immigration in London. I remember going there a few years ago, and uh, uh, you know, if you go to London, people have immigrated there from their former colonies like Pakistan and India and Bangladesh. 12% of, of London is Muslim. 12% of Londoners are Muslim. 5% are Hindu. Many are Sikh. They are very, very difficult to reach in their home country. But when they move to England, guess what language they learn? English. <laughs> you can actually go and talk to them, and they are interested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
God is at work and he's moving among them, but they can't believe in a gospel they have not heard. They cannot hear unless someone preaches. They cannot preach unless they are sent. And, and so we see this necessity of the gospel. See, here, we are, we are just bathing in riches. I mean, think about just the Christian colleges within driving distance of this place. Did you know that Chattanooga is the most church city in America? The most church city. That's not a bad thing. That's great. I, and I know Chattanooga is still, many people are unreached. Less than 50% attend church. I live in Colorado Springs. We have a few ministries there, right? You know, but we're, you know, 18% of the people are, 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 uh, attend an evangelical church. But, but we are bathing in riches. And we, we, we have so much around us. There are more people in this room who are Christians than there are in the entire country of North Yemen. And, and, and so we look at this and we see the need. It's, it's not that we need to neglect the need here, and we can talk about that more uh, this, this evening, because there's certainly a need here that we need to be doing. But here's the great news. God already has a bunch of missionaries for Chattanooga. He's got you. You're already here, and you're free, by the way. So it's, it's an incredible deal. Uh, and, and so, but we have other places where there are, there's no Christian witness. Uh, that, that is, uh, there's no one there to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we, we, we see the incredible need. We have friends who are uh, in a city in the Middle East. And uh, you know, as far as they know, other than workers that are there in the city that we can't mention, there's no one there to tell them, uh, the people there, about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, you know, in fact, where they are in the Middle East, you know, here's the thing about, about Islam, is they believe in Jesus. All Muslims believe in Jesus. They just don't believe in the real Jesus. They all believe he's a prophet. They believe he's a good man. Uh, but they don't really believe he's the son of God. They don't believe he died on the cross. They don't believe in the forgiveness of sins. How are they going to believe unless someone tells them? You can live your entire life in Japan, Cambodia, back, uh, Pakistan, Vietnam. You can be born live your whole life, die, and never, ever meet a Christian. How are they going to believe unless they hear the good news? And, so, and how are they going to hear the good news unless someone tells them? And how is someone going to tell them unless they're sent? But taking the good news of the gospel is not merely a duty that we have. It is a duty. I don't want to say it's not. It is a duty that we have, but it's not merely a duty. It really is a privilege, and Paul highlights this as well. So let's look at the privilege of proclaiming and sending. The privilege of proclaiming and sending. Look again at verse 15. It says, And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now he's quoting uh, from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, Isaiah 52, and it's referring to a time when a messenger would come into the royal court and to, to announce a you know, victory in battle or some, something that wonderful that has happened. Now remember, you know, people wore sandals in those days. And that's why they did foot washing before you do meals. You'd clean off your feet because they're going to be nasty and smelly. I mean, you know, just think of a middle school boy locker room smell. I mean, that's everybody's feet. So uh, these guys would come in, they'd be caked with dirt, 
And normally you'd clean yourself off before you go into the royal court, but if you have good news, you just go in, and there you are, nasty, filthy, sweaty, dirty, you know, just out of the field of battle. And he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Like, you don't care about the stinky feet. The news makes it beautiful. The news makes it lovely. And you want to hear that good news. And here's the thing about missions. It's dirty, it's stinky, it's smelly, it's hard. Story about the Patton's when they first went to Vanuatu. It just, you know, it's just hard. And, and you know, missionaries, one of the things they struggle with is writing their prayer letter, and they're, they're wanting to know, uh, you know, are you worried about the CPC, cost per convert, you know? And, and they're looking at this, and we've been here for years, and we're not seeing much happening, and is the church going to support me because it just doesn't seem to be that, that, that fruitful? It is, it is hard work plowing hard ground that can take a very long time. Again, consider Vanuatu and what it took to happen there. But uh, it's also incredibly inefficient and expensive. You have some missionaries who are going to be going to training this week, and for many of our missionaries, it takes them almost a year to raise their support, uh, then they go through training, and if they're going to a lang- country where they don't know the language, they've got to learn the language, and after a year or so, they're all the way up to like five-year-old you know, language capability. Uh, and it takes a very long time, and to understand the culture and to get in, and then to build relationships, it takes a good while. It is expensive, and it is inefficient, and there's no other way. Because how are the people going to believe if they don't hear, and how are they going to hear unless they are sent to preach. And so, but then how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? How beautiful to be a part of seeing lives being transformed by the gospel, to be someplace and to say, you know, in 1960, only 30% of the people in Africa were Christian. Now, 80% in these areas. I mean, don't you want to be a part of that? Don't we want to be a part of what God is doing and how he's moving and how he's working? God is going to fill the earth with his glory. There will be people from every tribe, language, and tongue gathered around the throne, and we'll all be there together praising God. Don't you want to be a part of that, seeing the nations come and stream to him? Don't you want to be there and look around the room and see the people who are very, very different from us, places that were previously unreached, and you're standing next to them shoulder to shoulder, and you're praising God and saying, Our God reigns. Our God is lovely. Our God is beautiful. And we're part of this new kingdom. To do that, we have to have our feet get dirty. You can't do that with clean feet. A friend of mine, George Robertson, tells a story about a friend of his who was working in New Orleans in the infamous Ninth Ward, one of the worst um, impoverished places in the country. And George asked this man, he said, "Um, how did you do this. I mean, this guy could do anything he wanted. He, he did not need this job. He said, why, why are you doing something like this? And he said, well, I learned it when I was in Little League. When I was in Little League and first baseball team, I got my uniform. It was a brand new uniform and brand new cleats, and I didn't want to get my uniform dirty. So when uh, it came time to run the bases, I would run around the puddles because I didn't want to get my new cleats dirty. And when the ball would come, I wouldn't dive for the ball because I didn't want to get my uniform dirty. And when it came time to slide, it didn't slide because I didn't want to get my britches dirty. And so he said, you know, we ended up, the team won the game. And we're all in the dugout, and he looked around the dugout, and everybody's cheering, and everybody's happy, and he's happy, and he looks around, and everybody has a dirty uniform but him. He says, you know, I realized I did nothing 
to contribute to the team. He said, from then on, I decided I'm going to live with dirty britches. Christians, let's get our britches dirty. Let's get in the game. God is at work. He is going to win. All the nations will come and praise him. They will gather around his throne, and we get to be part of it. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege of being part of what you're doing, that we get to share uh, in the gospel message, that we get to be part of seeing the nations come to praise you. We thank you that even today there are, are people who are around us from all over the world who share in our faith through our brothers and our sisters, people from you know, distant lands from us, but even we are from distant lands from where the gospel began, and so we thank you that we get to be a part of it. And so, Lord, we pray, first, that you would give us great confidence in the gospel, that we would see not only our own need for it, that we are sinners in need of grace, but also that others need this hope that we have found as well. So may we grow confident that this gospel message is true and that it is beautiful and it is lovely, and so that we would want to share this beauty with others. And Father, along with that confidence in the gospel, we pray that you give us confidence in you so that we can get dirty, so that we can sacrifice, give more than we would normally feel like we could give, go places where we would normally feel like we could not go, speak to people we would normally feel like we could not speak to, not because we're confident in our ability, but because we're confident in you. And so, Lord, we pray, burden our hearts so that we might see this plentiful harvest coming home. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.